Welcome to the Director's Chair, a Lowy Institute podcast. My name is Michael Forleylove and I'm the Executive Director of the Lowy Institute. On the Director's Chair, I sit down with political leaders, policymakers and commentators in order to understand what's happening in the world. I'm delighted that my guest on this episode of the Director's Chair is one of my favourite authors, Anna Funder. Anna is a Melbournean by birth, but a Sydney cider by choice. She's a long-time student of Germany, and her debut book, Stasiland, told the story of life in East Germany, and in particular the work of the East German Secret Service, the Stasi. The book was an international bestseller and has been published all over the world. Anna has also written some wonderful fiction, including the novel All That I Am, which won the 2012 Miles Franklin Award. Australians also read Anna from time to time in our newspapers and magazines where she writes on various topics. I'm very excited as this is the first episode of the Director's Chair that we've conducted in person. So thank you, Anna Funder, for joining me here at the Bly Street headquarters of the Lowy Institute to record the Director's Chair. It's a pleasure. All right, Anna, you were born in Melbourne, but you spent some time growing up in San Francisco and Paris, which sounds wonderful, I must say. How did that come about? Tell us a bit about your childhood. My father was a medical researcher and he was doing postdoctoral work when I was really quite small in San Francisco Mm -hmm. and then in Paris as well. So I was sort of five, I think, when we left San Francisco and then started school in France. Mm -hmm. And my mother was a psychologist or wanted to be a psychologist. And so she was stuck at home with three small children to experiment on really without asking Mm -hmm. any ethics committee whatsoever. Mm And part of that experiment was when I went off to school in Paris, she didn't say anything to me such as, you won't understand a word of Mm. what's going on. She thought that would be anxiety inducing. So I went off and started school and of course didn't understand a single word. And I think really when I look back on it, that that was the beginning of being thrown into situations that I completely Mm. didn't understand Mm. and then kind of conquering them. Do you conduct these experiments on your own children? (laughs) I really try not to, but you'd have to ask them in 20 years. Okay. Yeah. When you came back to Australia, you trained in the law and you worked as a lawyer for a couple of years, I think, for the Australian government. Was the law important in your life or was it really a way station on on the path to becoming a writer? That's a little bit like admitting if you had some sort of secret, slightly kind of wayward desire, you Mm. know, that was running underneath your surface life, which I did. So- Mm -hmm. I think it was a way station, but I come from a very kind of high-powered intellectual family in some ways, and it was much more scientific. And I think that I couldn't quite find a way to express the fact that I was just going to go and write. And I think that coming from that background, doing law, along with literature and German, was a kind of expected thing to do in a way. And it was quite good. As you say, I did work in international law for the Australian government in the 90s. So under a little office called the Office of International Law, Mm -hmm. while Keating was in power. And that was really fascinating, much more probably fascinating to you than for me. Mm -hmm. But it was the best job I could imagine. So when I left it, I knew that I wasn't going back to the law, that I had to make the writing somehow work. You mentioned you studied German and, of course, your two most well-known books both deal with 20th century German history. Where does this fascination with Germany come from? It sounds a bit odd to say. I don't think I have a fascination with Germany in itself. I learnt the language and I love the language and I love the literature. So then, of course, that's an interest in the country. But it wasn't... I'm not coming from a background of political science or anything like that. Mm. 
What I was really interested in in my first book, Stasi Land, was the moment of courage where people, quite ordinary people, find it in themselves to basically say to a dictatorship, to a secret service agent representing that dictatorship, no, I will not collaborate. Effectively, that book is about four really on the surface ordinary people, a housewife, a student, an alcoholic rock star, who say, I know that you can twist my life completely out of shape, but I will not inform on my friends, family, colleagues, and so on. That little kernel of what it is to be human is what really interests me. And the fact that I had studied in West Berlin when the wall was up, so I was familiar with that situation. When the wall came down, I could go back and explore it. Just meant that Germany, in a sense, was for me the obvious place to look at human beings in those extreme circumstances. If I'd studied Russian, I would have done the same thing in Russia, you know, or Vietnam or China. There are a number of places where you can, many places where you see that courage. It just was that my background was with Germany. Let me ask you about Stasi Land. It's one of my favourite nonfiction books, powerful, humane and unforgettable. Tell us about the process of researching and writing Stasi Land. So when I abandoned the best job that I was ever going to have in international law, I also abandoned the then boyfriend and the family and the prospect of any career or likely livelihood and just got myself together and went to Berlin. And I think that's one way of really putting your colours on the mast or something Mm -hmm. and saying, I'm going to, I'm going to write something because if I don't, there was no way back. I found the story of Miriam, which is the anchor story in that book really quite early, just by almost haphazardly going into this civil rights activists museum, which was housed in the old Stasi headquarters in Leipzig called the Runde Ecke. And just talking to the woman who happened to be behind the desk and talking about what I was interested in. And she said to me, you might like to go and talk to Miriam. And so I did. And her story, which I thought was going to be the story of her husband's death in Stasi custody, turned out to be an enormous story of trying to get over the wall, of confronting the Stasi face-to-face and of the Stasi then chasing you effectively the rest of your life. And as it turned out, also kind of the repercussions of that after the fall of the wall. I came back to these flatmates in Berlin at that time and said, I have found the story for me. And they looked at me like, you are a crazy person. You've only, you only found one story. Mm-hmm. But I knew then that that would be a really a way into these stories and a way of working out how to tell the stories of so-called ordinary people who resisted that regime. Then, of course, I had to go and look for Stasi men because I thought this is going to be very one-sided and I need to see the sort of whites of their eyes. I need to see who these people were up against. And I met a young woman who said to me at a party and she said to me, oh, you will never, this is 1997, you will never find any Stasi men to talk to you. They've all gone to ground. And I said, well, how do you know? And she said, well, I'm doing my master's on the Stasi Mm -hmm. and I have sent 147 letters and I've leafleted their letterboxes in Marzahn, which is an area where they live. And I know that they won't talk to you because I got three replies and those replies were all anonymous and they all said, these are the reasons why we won't talk to you. So I thought, I don't have time for that. I will do a very unscientific method, which was to advertise for Stasi men. So I took out an advertisement in the 
Merkisha Allgemeine. This is before the internet, so 97. And I had someone read this for me because though I speak German, I didn't know how to do all the abbreviations in an ad. As it turned out, the ad came out in this newspaper and it was put in the personal columns at the back of this. It's kind of like the Wentworth Courier, but it was sort of the Stasi Wentworth Courier, if that's imaginable. And in the personal columns- The real columns, estate ads. The real estate ads, but yeah. it was the personal column. So it was kind of the sort of the, the really dodgy mm. end of this paper. And it said- Australian writer seeks Stasi men, you know, view conversation. And then it had my phone number. And of course, it's before mobile phones. So they all rang mm. at my rather decrepit flat. And then I had this series of rather odd, very interesting meetings and assignations with Stasi men in their houses, in cafes, in the street, driving around in their cars mm. to talk to them. The book was a huge success, but I think it was harder to find a publisher in Germany than many other countries. Tell us a bit about that. And also, how did the Stasi men react to the book when it was eventually published in Germany? Yeah, so the book went out to, I think, 23 publishers in Germany, something like that, in about 2002 or three, And there were very few responses from them. One response did come back where this publisher said, this is the best book written on this issue so far, which is actually kind of weird praise because it was the only book written on this issue from the kind of resistance point of view so far. But we can't see our way in the current political climate in Germany to publishing it. I don't know what that means. That could mean anything. That could mean the Stasi men are making careers now in business, possibly in publishing, certainly in politics, or it might mean as well, the wound is still too open. This book with these testimonies of ordinary people who had found this courage to resist in them came as a shock, I think, to people. The Stasi were used to obviously suppressing any discussion of them, comment about them, any dissent. So for anybody who'd been in the Stasi, the army, an informer, uh, there were hundreds of thousands of these people who were sort of state adherents, they hated the book. Anybody who'd been a resistor loved the book when it eventually came out. But there was this broad mass of people in the middle for whom it was very uncomfortable. And I was very foolish about that. I had thought to myself, this shows civil resistance. This shows courage, mm. like the courage of the early anti-Nazi resistors, mm. Hans and Sophie Scholl. Mm. This shows that the East Germans were, contrary to what was being put about in the West, not a nation of downtrodden whinges. There was real heroism, obviously mm -hmm. real human courage there and so on. But that was not at all how the book was received. Mm. I didn't realise that until I went on the book tour. Eventually it was published by a West German publisher and it was launched in the, actually in the same building it started in, in the former offices of the Leipzig Secret Police. In the upstairs they had this kind of ballroom, it was kind of media room. So it was literally launched at the Leipzig Book Fair in 2004 in the Secret Policeman's ballroom. <laughs> And there was a stage and the publisher, my publisher, got up on stage behind a lectern and I was in the wings. I looked out at her and I could see that her knees were knocking and I just thought, oh, come on, you know, you've done this before. This is scarier for me than it is for you and I'm doing it all in German. And when I got out to the lectern, I looked down and I could see why she was so frightened because the first two rows of people there were ex-Stasi or ex-party members, these sort of middle-aged men in brill cream looking extremely angry. And as soon as I started to speak, they took out notepads and started taking notes, mm. kind of scratching them really angrily. Mm. 
And that's when I think it finally dawned on me that this book was not going to be received as a celebration of, of courage. It was really received mm. as a affront to the regime. And the regime still existed. Everyone thought the war came down and they were all gone. Mm. But of course, they were all still right there. Now, you've mentioned courage a few times. Is courage the human quality that you admire most? I think it's right up there. I think without the courage of your convictions or of any kind, it's really hard to have any other qualities because your qualities, whatever they are, even from from sort of kindness to patience to persistence to conscientiousness, all require some kind of courage in the face of opposition to do those things. They, they all exist in spaces that would militate against them sometimes. I think that courage of a personal kind and then courage of a kind of active kind are really important. And I think that's at a sort of bigger political level what keeps us safe from the inherent nature of power, which is to centralise and mm. to then not take account of people. Mm. A lot of power is now centralised in the hands of tech companies, of course, which have enormous knowledge of our day-to-day lives and which have access to surveillance tools that would have been beyond the dreams of the most ambitious Stasi man. How worried are you by this, Anna? I'm worried. I don't want to sound like a Jeremiah, but we are living in a world where the kind of power that tech companies have to know everything about us to sell that knowledge on, uh, to try and predict our behaviour, to micro-target everything from ads to vote messages to fake news. It's utterly unaccountable. There is no recourse for the individual. There's often no recourse for governments. Australian government is trying at the moment. There's no sort of ombudsman. There's very little legal regulation. There's no right to privacy. There's very little recourse for people who suffer trolling or hate crimes. We're living in a world of enormous, untrammeled private power over people. And I think it's extremely dangerous. I think we were in the States when Obama was in power, and I can remember him saying, never has so much power ended up being used well. He said it better, of course. I mean, it's frightening to me. Let me ask you a little bit more about writing in general. How do you set about writing a new book? Where does the idea come from? How structured are you? Do you have a detailed roadmap about where the book is going to take you? Or is there a lot of serendipity about how it comes out on the page? The first thing that happens is that there's an idea. The idea is bound up with often a kind of love of its object, a love, an admiration, and a curiosity all bound up together. That feeling is incredibly exciting. So whether it's about knowing, for instance, that there will be stories of, I knew artists and writers when I was at the university in Germany before the war fell, who'd been kicked out of the East German regime. So I knew in the back of my mind that unlike any other Eastern Bloc country, East Germany could kick out its best and brightest or its dissenters or its so-called travel makers into the West. And I knew that some of these people who I really admired. So That was interesting to me as an example of an artistic life which conflicted with the politics of its time. So there's a story there. I didn't know what it would be. I went looking. That said, I thought I was going to write a novel. And then it became clear to me that it was aesthetically and morally the wrong thing to do, to do that in fiction, because Miriam, say, or all the other people who were speaking to me, their stories were not being told. So they were going to be swept under the carpet. And I just thought, this is not appropriate for me 
to be using someone else's story in a novel because a novel foregrounds the writer's voice. And that just struck me as wrong. I needed to foreground their voices, so that had to be nonfiction. Mm. Then I had to work out a way of doing it. How do you string together four stories of heroism and then all these umpteen kaleidoscope of Stasi apparatchiks? And I did that by welding it into a present tense narrative of my time in Berlin. So that is just a shorthand way of saying you have an idea, but then you have to work out fiction, nonfiction, and then you have to work out, given nonfiction, how are you going to string that into a narrative that stands up kind of architecturally, beginning, middle, end of some kind, psychological journey of some kind through the book. All that I am is based on real people who resisted Hitler, but they're all dead. They can't talk to me. To the extent that I'm stealing a story, I'm doing it for reasons of making it live again Mm. and making those people live again. So that was in fiction. So I think that there's a sort of kernel of passion and then I have to plan it quite carefully and give myself a structure like an architect's blueprint, if you like. But within that structure, feel like a lot of unexpected things will happen because I think it's impossible to write what you really need to be writing, consciously controlling it. I think that as a writer, your conscious self is possibly a lot less intelligent than your unconscious self, which is trying to work out problems such as, why are you so attracted to this subject in the first place? Why am I so attracted to these people, this political dilemma, this heroism, this dictatorship or any? That psychological issue, which I still haven't worked out yet, is if you like the kind of nuclear reactor that fires the passion to write the books. And that passion is going to come out in the writing and that's what's going to take the reader along. But you can't do that consciously. You have to have a blueprint within which you expect to be derailed by Mm. your unconscious, Mm. if you like. Well, you've got it like an architect responding to the conditions on site. You have to have site meetings, don't you, where you you identify the problem and you work out how you're going to work around it. That's right. So every new problem, that's exactly right. Every new problem is a chance to work out why that problem is there. You didn't anticipate it. Mm. You can't get around it. You have to deal with it. So writers are a bit like architects. Now, are they a bit like spies as well? Always eavesdropping, watching people, seeing how they react to each other, trying to decode what they say and what their gestures mean. Did you feel a bit like a Stasi agent at all as a writer? Yes, absolutely. Of course, I think that that's true. So what you've identified, I would put in the basket of unconscious motivators that Uh, feed my curiosity with the Stasi men. I worked for the Australian government. I could have gone into foreign affairs. Mm -hmm. It's a, you know, small jump there into spying. And I think the skills of a writer and the skills of a spy are probably, you know, have a great sort of deal of overlap in the Venn diagram, as you say, of eavesdropping. Also of trying to understand other human motivation. Mm -hmm. Everybody does that but this is what you're doing at a kind of professional level. So I had quite a lot of sympathy for the Stasi men in many ways. Also as an ex-lawyer, actually, I understand that they wanted to make careers. I understand that they wanted to feel safe within the organisation. So they were mistaken to think, if I join the Stasi, I will be protected from the Stasi, as some of the stories show. But the idea of saying as we all do, even in this Google world that we live in, we can't fight everything. You have to live 
this little allotted life that you have. So let's make the best of it. And maybe my kids will have a better education and an easier time if I join the Stasi. I understand all of those things. Viscerally, I'm much closer to that, unfortunately, than to the heroism of the people that I admire. But I think that's where I sit writing about those things. Mm. Or let me ask you about some of the places you've lived. As I mentioned in the introduction, you're from Melbourne, but you've lived the last couple of decades in Sydney. What do you love about Sydney and why do you choose to live here? Um, Well, I think that the answer to that question is more about me than it is about Sydney or Melbourne per se, you know. I think it was fantastic to grow up in Melbourne and we moved to Sydney. You know, my mother had just died. Things were kind of collapsing and difficult and there was a sense of, I suppose, I don't know, I'm just thinking about this on the spot now, in in some ways running from grief into beauty, you know, but I don't, Sydney is obviously one of the most beautiful cities on the planet, but I, do, I don't mean that as a negative to Melbourne, I just mean it to sort of illustrate what was going on for me. My husband then came, we were just married, and I think we were utterly beguiled by Sydney. There's a sort of liberation in Sydney. Sydney is kind of free and open and exquisite. And I was very curious about it. And so we just fell in love and stayed. In 2012, you and your husband and your family moved to New York City and you lived there for three and a half years. What was that experience like? And what differences did you notice between the United States and Australia? I had underestimated Mm -hmm. the differences between cultures. You think you speak the same language and you absolutely don't. Mm. The idiom is utterly different. What remains unsaid is different. I think culturally, as a writer, it was extraordinary. I could meet so many other writers. Everybody had read everything and everyone, and everybody who was writing a book would come through and talk. So that was fantastic. I found it politically very tricky. And now in this woke age, I'm watching as this politics of identity, which has its you know, very, very important aspects is kind of being adopted slightly holus bolus in Australia. Mm. And I see that in a much more differentiated way because I see what role that identity politics plays in a place like America where there is no healthcare and very little social provision and people Mm. are tied to their employer. They are tied to capital Mm. because their healthcare depends on their jobs in a way that we are not here. We have the freedom to change jobs without our whole family suddenly being unable to access medical care and so on. Or, you know, at the primary schools on the websites for the state public um, primary schools, there is a race breakdown of the students. So you can go and you have a look and it says this percentage white, this percentage African-American, this percentage Asian, this percentage Mm. other. So coming from Australia, you think, wow, they're doing a race breakdown Mm. on the public schools. They are doing that because the idea is we are so diverse, but actually it's not being read in that way by the parent body, which is reading it, looking and saying, that school has too many African-American kids. That means it's poor. That means I will send my kids, if I'm white, to Mm. some other school. So the uses of what looks like openness about diversity are actually uh, still being read as markers of entrenched inequality and racism. So I came away, that's a tiny example Mm. of just saying what you see and and what is actually there takes a long time to learn to read those Mm. signs and how different they are from here. Mm. 
I mean, as a writer, you have to back yourself to get inside the head of people who are very different from you. But does identity politics in its more extreme variants, does it forbid you from doing that? I think that's the biggest question of our time at the moment, you know, and certainly for writers, it's a very big question. I think the idea of forbidding anybody to write about anything is dangerous. And for me, it's a very tricky thing because obviously I've written about two regimes in the centre of Europe where many people were forbidden Mm. from writing or speaking about certain things. So I... That it's kind of anathema to me. I can see that there is a political movement that seeks to make more voices available from used to be known as the margins or mm. diverse voices and so on. And for those to be read with great respect, I completely agree. But I don't think that you can ever forbid somebody, actually journalists, nonfiction writers or fiction writers from writing about people who are not them. Because then you are saying that empathy is not possible and actually, certainly for a fiction writer, that is the main fuel, that is the main game. And I had an interesting experience, which kind of, no pun intended, woke me up to some of these issues where I was judging a prize in Australia, an essay prize, non-fiction essay prize, and the rules of the prize were changed between the time when I signed on Mm -hmm. with two other people and when the prize was judged. And those rules, I hadn't realised, turned out to be exactly along these lines. We will not be accepting essays about any minority group or group of particular sexual orientation unless the writer is a member of that group. Mm. And I felt, look, I've written about so many things. I'm a privileged white woman and... I really don't want to just write about privileged white women. I've written about all sorts of things. What those rules were designed to do, or what they said they were designed to do, was to prevent essays that were condescending or inaccurate. Mm -hmm. And I think that a piece of writing that is condescending or inaccurate will reveal itself as condescending and inaccurate and therefore be out of contention. So it's a little bit like trusting your expertise and looking at the work of writing rather than judging something on the skin colour or sexual orientation of its writer. Mm. Let me ask you about life during the pandemic. How have you found it? Writing is a solitary exercise by definition. So in a way, perhaps it hasn't been a bad period for writers, although writers with school-aged children might disagree because isolation probably seemed very attractive when you had your kids doing their homeschooling from your lounge room. But how have you found the pandemic? I think it's been a lot more difficult for many, many other people than it has been for me. Last year, my eldest started at the university Mm -hmm. and everything kind of shut down and Mm -hmm. went online. And I feel for young people who are just coming into their independence, Mm -hmm. who would normally be exploring the world on their own in their hometown and then literally the world on their own, I think they had a lot to lose. And a lot of people who were in jobs where they had to interact with people, all the quarantine workers and Mm -hmm. hotel workers and so health workers teachers. I think they did an enormous amount and it was a lot more difficult and I could just hole up at home and work. Mm. It wasn't super fun, the homeschooling. Um, And I really noticed that the brunt of that was borne very differently by women than by men. So I found that quite confronting by mothers and by fathers. But for me personally, it was no, you know, it was no tremendous, tremendous loss. Mm. How do you think Australia has performed in response to the coronavirus pandemic? Look, I actually think really wonderfully well. 
you know, I feel very protected. I think that we have faith in our medical experts have proven themselves to be absolutely phenomenal. And that includes our government and our political leaders mm-hmm. have faith in them as well. So they show by example what mm-hmm. can be done with that kind of clever leadership. And then the public response has been very interesting as well. People have been trusting in government mm-hmm. because we have good reason to trust them, which is very different from the response in America where government is smaller, underfunded, there's no public health system, there's a massive cultural 400-year-long distrust of government, certainly since the Civil War. I mean, I was interested, an American friend said, oh, you know, it's interesting in Australia, you're also compliant. And it kind of just stuck in my mind. I thought, I don't like that. I don't like something about what is being said there. And then I realized what is being said is somehow we have all obeyed our government. And I just thought, this is another example of how Americans find it so hard to understand what's really going on here, Mm. because we are so much more empowered vis-a-vis our government, largely by the fact of having a national healthcare scheme, I think, where human dignity is all at a certain level. We are not vulnerable to capital in the way that they are vulnerable there. And we can vote this government out. You know, our government is not owned by corporations. We don't Mm. have the super PAC decision. We're not compliant. We're in control, you know? And so I think that Australia dealt with it really well. And I think that people generally dealt with it really well. We're really responsible. When you look at Mr. Barbecue Man, for instance, in the eastern suburbs, who's gone around looking, we thought to buy a barbecue, turns out to be to buy a barbecue chain of stores, but he's using the QR code everywhere he goes. So just to sort of contradict myself saying how frightened I am of Google, you know, that's a very good use of technology, Mm. isn't it? Where we can track a virus down Mm. to its DNA Mm -hmm. uh, through the barbecue shops and barbecue Mm. man Mm. using the QR code. Mm. So, you know, I think we've dealt with it really well. And I don't mind so much about this idea of drawbridge Australia. I think Mm. there are many disadvantages to being an island on the other side of the world, far from everyone, but it has to be an advantage that we are now Mm. so free largely from this disease. Mm. How do you think we will lower the drawbridge though? The government's now saying that the borders may not open until mid next year. There's lots of opinion polls that say that most Australians, a majority of Australians are, are very comfortable with that. Is there a danger, do you think, that, that a country like Australia that has in many ways been open to the world with big immigration programs and large diasporas of which you remember for a while and Australians travel, you know, Australians being fantastic travellers, is there a, a sense that one of the prices of success might be that we turn our face away from the world a bit longer and disengage from the world and find it difficult to re-engage with a world in which there will always be the risk of catching COVID just as there are, you know, multitudes of risks. They shouldn't stop you from being out in the world and living your life, should they? Yes, these are the, you know, big and difficult questions of our time. I suppose the Anticipation is we will get everybody vaccinated here. That's not total protection. And somehow we will learn to live with the risks of this disease as Mm -hmm. we've learned to live with the risks of other diseases. And then the drawbridge will come down and people will be able to take it upon themselves to leave the country. But there will always have to be, I would hope, some checks on people coming in as to whether they're Mm -hmm. infected or whether they have the disease. I think it is a case of risk management. You know, I, I think that. It's hard for people who are in the diaspora and it's hard for people who, if they want to get back, and it's hard for people who have relatives overseas. But 
it's also hard if we had a lot of deaths here and a lot of mourning. And I think that the way that those judgments have been made, whilst they're very painful for some people, are less painful than had we had mm. massive death toll here. Finally, Anna, let me ask you, what cities are you missing most? If the drawbridge were to come down tomorrow and you could jump on a flight, what would be the destination? I have three. Is that permissible? Well, if you can get, if, if Qantas will provide you with that ticket, yes. Well, first of all, I'd really like to be able to get back. Um, <laughs> you know, you can only leave home if you can get back. Uh-huh. I would be in Paris and Berlin. Yeah, and then I'd go to London to see my agent. Where would you be if and when the drawbridge comes down? Where will we find you? I'd probably head to Washington if I had the choice, just because there are so many interesting things happening there. And it's a joy for an America file to see the United States coming back after four years of the Trump experiment, to see the United States back and trying to engage and trying to play a positive role. To see that up close, I think I would enjoy that. But I could also be persuaded to take the flights to Paris, Berlin and London. They also sound fun. See you there. And it's been very interesting to hear today about your life and your career, all the places you've been, and in particular, the places you're going to go next. So thank you, Anna Funder, for speaking with me today on The Director's Chair. Thank you, Michael. You've been listening to The Director's Chair, a podcast by the Lowy Institute, hosted by me, Michael Fullylove. Thanks for listening, and please tune in to the next episode of The Director's Chair. 